You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Have you finally come to save your apes? I came for you. For me. So I, I really am. I'm so excited to be here to be able to talk about uh, this last film in the uh, at least the Caesar trilogy. I guess that's probably what we should call it, uh, because there's always a possibility they could do more films. Uh, I was listening to the interview with Matt Reeves uh, and uh, that's always something they could do. But this is really to wrap up the Caesar trilogy. So, uh, man, I'm so excited, man. How are you doing? I'm doing really good, but I got to start off by saying there's one thing that I'm really disappointed about this trilogy that we didn't get. Now, have you ever seen Free Enterprise? I have not. Okay, well, in it, William Shatner raps a song called No Tears for Caesar. Why did we not uh, have that song in this movie at some point? <laughs> William Shatner you know, could I, be singing. I don't know. I don't know. Of course, you know... Uh, if I remember correctly, The Simpsons also had the episode where they had the Planet of the Apes musical. Yep. Uh, and there's some great songs in there Chimpan as well. Chimpanzee to so, Chimpanzee. Yeah. So, uh, how did that stuff not end up in there? Yeah. Any, anyway, um, this is uh, we have so much to talk about. This this is such uh, a jam packed movie, and so, and and so far has been a spectacular series. And I think we both agree because uh, we've been doing this, that each of the films have actually gotten better. Like, And so it'll be interesting to see whether we felt like, did this one raise the bar? Did it get even better? Or where did we go? So before we completely dive into War for the Planet of the Apes, uh, you could find us all over the place here at Trek FM. You can find us on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. 
We're a feature provider on Apple Podcasts, uh, so you can check us out there. Uh, heck, while you're there, give uh, the 602 Club a star rating and review. That definitely helps the show grow, uh, it, and it really does. Um, the uh, The last round of reviews we got... I've definitely noticed an uptick in the numbers, just more people finding the show. So that's fantastic. Uh, and share us all over the place, social media, uh, you know, on your Twitter, Facebook, and everything else. Uh, we've got the listeners-only discussion group that you can be a part of, and that's on Facebook. Type Babel into the search field there, and you'll find that group. Or if you're on our website at trek.fm, click Discussion on the menu bar, and that'll bring you over. And then, of course... And the last place, if you'd like to send an email about anything we do here in the 602 Club or any ideas you have for the show, make sure you just go over to trek.fm slash contact, choose this show, choose 602 Club, and that'll come to me and anybody else who is a host that week. And so, so Brandon, uh, from the rise of the dawn comes war. And I really just kind of wanted to start at the very beginning of this movie because in a lot of ways, even though it's clear that some time has passed. The effects of what happened with Koba and the the apes kind of beginning this war has had a huge effect. And, and we begin as humans are hunting apes in the jungle. Not really the jungle, but uh, in the woods. And I just, I, I, was, I was struck by how this movie really begins as kind of a, a classic war film, you know, with the guys moving through the woods, you know, real softly looking for the enemy and everything. And just, it, it really hits off, I think, uh, on that, you know, I mean, this movie's called War for the Planet of the Apes. And and we really start hitting hard this, this idea that we are in the middle of a war between the apes and the human beings. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, the title itself, War for the Planet of the Apes, is an interesting one because we start with this battle, but throughout most of the movie, there's not a ton of fighting and war going on. So I, you know, Mike Schindler, I love listening to Mike, and he's got a thing going on right now where he's not watching trailers for anything. So I'm like, I'm going to give that a try because, you know, there's certain movies that I'm going to go see and I don't need to see the trailer for. And this is one of them. I'm going to go see this movie no matter what. So I actually hadn't seen a trailer for this movie, so I didn't know what to expect going into it. So how I don't know if the trailers conveyed that or not, but to see so little actual fighting throughout the movie, I was actually quite surprised. And, you know, right early on in the film, Caesar goes off on his own with just a couple of his soldiers, and we're basically left alone with this small group of apes throughout the whole movie. It's really, really a fascinating way of portraying this type of story. Well, and, and you really do hit on something I think is, is really interesting about the film because the, the title itself, War for the Planet of the Apes, that statement means that this already is the Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. but we're warring over it. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting is really, you know, the humans are, are, are after Caesar and the apes, but really the war that's happening and what's kind of really being talked about here becomes the war between the different human factions mm-hmm. over a planet that's already, when we look at the title, not theirs. And I think that's something, like you're saying, you're expecting it to be this kind of massive epic war movie with the apes and the humans, and then that's not exactly what it turns out to be at all. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, the way that they, they, they did a couple of things that really throw you off at the beginning, especially like when they're in that war scene and that gorilla hand comes up and touches that guy, like I'm expecting that gorilla to grab him and rip him apart. And then it just turns out that he's working with them, right? So we've got this other aspect of these apes that are being traitorous to the apes, to the, to the other apes, to Caesar and his group, and going to work for the humans, which is an interesting twist on something that we've seen in the original Planet of the Apes, because in the fifth original Planet of the Apes movie, which I think is battle for the Planet of the Apes, um, you know, humans and apes are working together, but they're kind of on the good side. And in this, the human and the apes working together are on the antagonistic side. And, like, this movie does clearly promote this is a pro-ape movie. <laughs> like, you know, it's very interesting. This is a very pro-ape movie. You come into this thing, the opening scene, you're you're on the side of the humans because they're going to the attack, but right away you end up being pro-ape and you're on the side of Caesar and them. Well, and that's something uh, I was listening to, and I highly recommend it to anybody, but the Empire Podcast uh, will do spoiler specials. And many times on those spoiler specials, they'll be able to talk to the creators of the film. And they got to talk to Andy Serkis as well as Matt Reeves. And Matt said specifically that that was the point of this movie was that there wasn't really that that human element to it. There wasn't that human character to kind of be your viewpoint through the film. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that's through Caesar's eyes. Right, right, right. Uh, and what Caesar is uh, experiencing, and and what the apes experience. So yes, you're very much in line with the apes, and yet, I, I mean, and uh, one of the things that I do love is that when you kind of find out what these humans are about, especially the humans they come up against uh, with the Colonel. That's all he's named, uh, Woody Harrelson. We'll call him Sanders. Yeah, there's there's really something that jives with you and you can kind of almost wrap your head around being that person if you were in the same position that he's in. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I think is so good about this movie is that it, yes, we are on the ape side the entire time, but there's a part of you when you hear how bad it is for the humans, you're like, okay, I, I get it. Like, I get why they're so hardcore. Like, they're at that point. Like, this could be the extinction for us. Right. You know, and what do you do to fight extinction? How brutal would you be to to face extinction if you're facing extinction? And I really, I, I like that even though I never can completely go to their side, right? I at least don't end up feeling like they're just murderous, nasty humans. Um, there, There is a sense in which I can understand where they're coming from, and I think that makes the movie all the more powerful mm-hmm. because it's it doesn't just leave them as the mustache-twirling bad guys in the end. Right. Like, the colonel himself, he's a very tragic character in this movie. You know, mm-hmm. he humanity is starting to lose the ability to speak slowly a couple of people at a time and as a military leader he makes the decision to start killing the people that uh, that are showing the symptoms of this as a, as it's a contagion which is different than how I've always interpreted the planet of the apes the way that I've always interpreted for the original trilogy is that he, trilogy, uh, the original series 
is that humanity just lost the ability. It became dormant because they didn't use it. That's just how I always interpreted it. I don't know if I missed something in the originals, but now they're playing it as a uh, as a disease. And for his son to get it, his young son, and for him to make the decision to kill his young son, like that's a tragic decision. I don't know. Like I couldn't make that decision, right? But as this military leader, he's trying to show strength to his warriors or whatever. And all the meanwhile, it's eating him up inside which is what makes him such a tragic character, you know? And I think he truly regrets what he did to Caesar's family in the movie. I think he truly regrets it because he knows what he's been through, right? And as a man of war, he knows that families should be immune from war. So, like, it's it's a really interesting character. Like, he's a bad dude, but he's a tragic character, which is which is very fascinating. Yeah, there, there's absolutely this sense of, of tragedy to everything that's happened. Uh, and and what I found most interesting, at least in the Colonel, is that he is well aware of the reason that this is happening to humanity. Unlike the jerk from the last movie who's like, oh, who should we blame? You know, not us. You know, he knows why this is happening. It's it's humanity's fault. He even says that to Caesar. You know, it's our fault. We created you. You know, th- this whole thing is is of our doing. And um, he has nobody to blame but humanity itself. And I think that's something that is is really interesting about the character as well and, and, and makes him much more believable and, and gives you that inclination to want to kind of at least put yourself in his shoes, especially when he tells you the story of why he's doing what he's doing. And so you, you've got this whole thing between humanity and the apes but really this is coming down to a war between humanity and humanity Mm -hmm. and two different versions of what they think is best to save humanity with the apes caught in the middle because well all the humans regardless of what side they're on are still afraid of the apes because not only do they carry the virus but you know they're like i think what eight times stronger than a human being Mm mm-hmm and they're wicked smart now. So it's like uh, even <laughs> humanity has this thing. Okay, even if we survive, we may not be the dominant species on the planet anymore. Like um and so it's it's kind of like being between a rock and a hard place for humanity, but they put themselves there too. And that's the thing. And so we start off as a war movie, but like you said the colonel, you know, he comes after Caesar and his goal is to kill Caesar. And he accidentally kills his son and his wife. Mm-hmm. And then the movie kind of almost makes a switch from being kind of a war movie like Apocalypse Now or something and turns into almost a revenge western where, you know, Caesar takes his little pack and they're off to to take care of the guy who killed his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that makes for a really interesting storyline because what it does for the character of Caesar uh, and the them- thematic elements that play through that are, I think, really fascinating. Because we, we we get this whole thing between mercy and, you know, hate. Like, mercy and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, basically, we get the fight between who Caesar was and who Caesar's becoming which is basically Caesar 
the original Caesar in like Koba. Right. And it becomes such a, a fabulous, fabulous character study uh, in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I, I hate to make these comparisons, right? But, you know, I was thinking a lot of Darth Vader in this, like while this was going on as well, right? Because basically Darth Vader, he's good. And then he goes to the dark side, and then at the end of Jedi, he becomes good again, right? And I mean, like, this is like him, Caesar's turning to evil and turning to the dark side in this because of his love for his family, right? I know it's different than a Jedi, but I was thinking of that when I was watching this movie as well. I don't know if you you thought of that at all while watching it. You know, I think that's actually a good parallel. And the thing that I thought was so interesting was, is the idea, okay, what would it take for Caesar to get to the point where he becomes more like Koba. Like, what would it be that would erode that feeling he's had for humanity? And, you know, that that feeling and that sense of trust and that, you know, we could work with them, uh, especially, you know, we we had um, Jason Clark's character in Dawn and, you know, obviously Will uh, from the first movie. You know, it, it's... And what it is, is it, if you take away the things he loves the most, his wife and his son, mm-hmm. his first son, you know, he has another son at this point, we, you know, that son was born in Dawn, uh, Cornelius. And I think that's so fascinating because the, the, the trigger for him then to slide into becoming more like Koba is to take away those like touchstones for him. Uh, that foundational element for him. And I thought that was really fascinating because in the end, he almost doesn't come back. Mm-hmm. Even at the end, like he almost doesn't find a way to let go of that hate. And it almost kills him. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was that was something to me that was um, was really fascinating because... In a lot of ways, not only is Caesar becoming more like Koba, but Caesar in a lot of ways is starting to mirror the colonel. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's the the thing that he doesn't realize almost until the very end, in that very last scene between them, that, that that's kind of what he's becoming. And I think this, this series has done such a great job of mirroring and this idea of like um, mercy is so phenomenal because their first major confrontation that they have together where the colonel is telling him his story and um, there's this mention and this idea of like, um, well, you didn't come here to show me mercy, did you? And that whole idea of like, giving forgiveness and compassion and grace to somebody who doesn't deserve it and what that takes to be able to do that was was a I just I don't know man I, I'm talking too much but it was just such a fascinating thing to watch that all play out between Caesar and the colonel see I didn't get mercy out of Caesar at the end when he decided to not kill um the colonel because to me, like, he went there with the intention of killing him. The colonel was basically drunk in his bed. And he decided, to, in my eyes, what I was watching was he decided to not kill the colonel because he felt 
a better punishment for him was leaving him alive with the disease that his son had, right? And the colonel asked him to kill him. Like, he didn't say it in words, but he he took the gun, placed it on his forehead, right? And Caesar said no. Now, mercy would have been, for the colonel, would have been killing the colonel because that's what the colonel wanted. The colonel didn't want to go forward anymore. And Caesar decided no to not do that, and he left the colonel to finish it for himself, right? Yeah, no, I, and I think I think you can read it that way. I think you know, honestly, it's it's art, so mm-hmm. you you can definitely read it that way. For me, the read was that Caesar had gone there to kill him, and when he saw what he had become, the choice was okay: do I kill him? Do I leave him like he is? Um, and the reason I think that leaving him as he is is not like some kind of revenge for Caesar mm-hmm. is because Caesar has already seen the value in Nova. And that even though these human beings may have, I guess you could say de-evolved in some ways, basically they've only lost the will to, they can't speak. Right. But that doesn't mean they're stupid. Right. And doesn't mean they can't learn things and all. And so it seemed to me that he was, it was mercy to not pull the trigger and and they left that decision up to the colonel you can kill yourself but i'm i'm not here anymore to take revenge like that that's not going to satisfy me as a character and that's why he's so frustrated and every emotion is coming out on caesar's face where yeah. he just kind of screams no at the you know like it, it it's it's paining him to not pull the trigger but he also knows that pulling the trigger is going to basically cement him becoming Koba mm-hmm. and not being able to continue to be more on the Caesar path you mm-hmm. know uh and and that's how that's how I read it was the that that's why still not killing him could be uh showing him mercy because just because he couldn't speak didn't mean his life didn't have value Mm -hmm. because we've already seen throughout the movie that just because, you know, Nova can't speak didn't mean she didn't have immense value in the end. Right. But I think Nova, like the Nova's opinion of not having the ability to speak versus the Colonel not having the ability to speak is, is completely different. Like it doesn't bother Nova the way it would bother the Colonel. And well, right. That's, I mean, but that, that part's not Caesar's responsibility, you know? I mean, Caesar is then placing a value on the colonel that the colonel's not even putting on himself at that point. And I think, you know, again, that's that's not Caesar's responsibility. Caesar's responsibility was only to not pull the trigger if he wanted to to save his soul, basically. And that's what this kind of this whole movie is, is that battle for Caesar's soul. Right. Like he has to walk through the dark night of the ape, you know? <laughs> and um I think he comes out the other side, basically, like you said, like an Anakin. But in a lot of ways, I, I felt like this might be seem like a strange reference, but he also kind of becomes like the ape Moses. You know, like he gets to lead his people to the promised land, but he's not going to enjoy it because basically he has to pay for the sins of not giving up that vengeance and hate until it's too late because it does cost him. Um, one, it almost costs him all of his people, mm-hmm. but it also costs him his life because he gets shot, and if they hadn't been there, it wouldn't have happened at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, 
you know, he gets the ability to like see the promised land for his people, but he doesn't actually get the uh, the the ability to experience in the same way in the Bible Moses doesn't get to go to the promised land. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't even get to cross over the river. Right. He only gets to see it from the mountaintop. And so, uh I thought that was that was a really interesting thing to watch because I felt like this movie is a war movie at the beginning, a revenge western, and a biblical epic all put together. Mm-hmm. And there's another comparison that I want to make in a second, but I don't want to forget about one thing here. Now, one thing that I think I would have liked to have seen differently is rather than having the colonel shoot himself in the end, you know, because right after he shoots himself, his soldiers come in the room and start attacking Caesar, right? I almost would have liked to have seen the soldier's reaction to finding the colonel that way. And then making the decision if he if the colonel is going to kill all our men that are starting to lose their voice, then have the cur- the colonel's men take revenge and kill the colonel, rather than the colonel killing himself. Does that make sense? Did I say that right? It would have been neat to yeah, see that. No, I that yeah yeah that that whole that's a great. I mean, I I think you have a an interesting idea there. That would have been. I mean, basically, that it would have been kind of interesting to see him kind of want the mercy from his own people mm-hmm. and them basically do what he did to his son, mm-hmm. you know, like, no, you, there is, you're just going to give this to us. You got to die. Mm-hmm. Now, the other comparison that I want to make, and my wife and I talked about this after we watched the movie is this is also very much like the Frankenstein story as well. Right. And how it climaxes at the end and whatnot with basically nature winning and, you know, the the monster created by mankind is escaping and like that monster being the apes right and like living on its own now the the apes aren't the bad guy in the same way that frankenstein's monster was not the bad guy in the film or in the book right so it's kind of got that similarity as well of the big snowstorm at the end coming down and and destroying everything and basically nature winning right Yes, no, absolutely. In fact, uh, in listening to that interview, Matt Reeves called that their um, Red Sea moment. You know, like it wipes out the army mm. and then, you know, the apes can, can escape. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think you're you're so right on. And one of the cool things that he talked about in that interview was the idea that they have the opportunity that they didn't have on the, 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 the first one he worked on with Dawn, which was... To do this one, they got to sit back, watch a bunch of movies, talk about what they wanted to do, um, really dig into the story, the characters, and everything else, and really think through the process of where they wanted to go. And I think you're absolutely right. You, you see all these little pieces, not just of like ape history, from because they watched all the ape movies too, but you're also seeing little pieces of different types of cinema and different, you know, big stories, uh, narrative structures from from other things all working together to tell the story. And I think that's one of the things that makes this movie so smart. Mm-hmm. And it makes this movie feel like such a, a triumphant end for the apes, uh, you know, Caesar series. Mm-hmm. Because it feels like it's been, as we've talked about with this series, it feels like it's just been so well thought out. You know, um, the second movie they did, you know, Matt was hired and he didn't like the script. He asked to change it. They they liked his idea and they went with it. So they had to go fast. But it still felt like it was very clear in a, as an idea. And so does this one. And I think each each one of these films has felt like that. Um, they've had a very clear idea where they wanted to go and what they wanted to do and where they wanted to leave you in the end. 
And this movie really replicates that, but I think it the extra time really pays off. And, and this is a movie that I'm really excited to rewatch because of all the things that I'm sure I missed because I was only able to see this once this, this last weekend. Yeah, um, me too. Disappointingly. Uh, yeah. And I would love to see it again because I feel like there's just, this movie is rife for kind of like pulling things apart, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's fascinating. I think you said it best when we were talking about Rise of the Planet of the Apes in that they gave their all with each one of these movies, right? They didn't... They, In my opinion, there was no hanging threads that were left to pick up in the sequel and the mysterious, ooh, why did they do that over there? And we'll explain that later. It's like they just told a complete story each time. I think every single one of these movies you could jump into without having seen the other ones. You don't have to watch the other ones. They're all complete stories on their own. However, they make this more massive story when you watch them all together. And I I love what you were saying that first time. They gave it everything, and they made the best movie they could make every time they made a movie. No, I and I I absolutely 100% agree, and not just because I said it, but just because I think that it plays <laughs> out on screen like that. You know, that that's why we're we're responding to this movie like that, because that's what was given to us on screen. And it's undeniable that that's the best way to make film. Right. Um, because I, I, I'm going to be honest and I'll, I'm, gosh, I'll just give it away here, but I don't think there's a better trilogy than this since maybe the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'd agree. And that's based off of Tolkien's books, you know? So, I mean, (laughs) it's, it's not as though they didn't already have source material. I mean, this is Lord of the Apes Mm -hmm. and it's, it's phenomenal. It it creates a trilogy that's so perfect, but that does enough to just make you, I mean, legitimately, Rise of the Planet of the Apes made me want to watch Planet of the Apes. So I did. Uh, my friends and I, we, we had rented Rise of the Planet of the Apes, then we rented Planet of the Apes. The other night, my wife and I come home from seeing War for the Planet of the Apes. What did we do? We bought Planet of the Apes on iTunes so we could watch it that night. And it, it it's because it it sets up and it makes you want to just flow right into that 70, uh, 68 story. Mm-hmm. Uh, not 2001 with Mark Wahlberg. Abomination, which will never be spoken of again in this podcast. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and something that really struck me about this and I loved about... Um, I think her name is Amaya Miller. I think that's how you would say her name. Mm-hmm. And she plays Nova. And this whole idea of the unwanted, because as we talked about, you know, the colonel killed his own son mm-hmm. because he had this updated version of the simian flu virus. And the moment he was sick, he's willing to sacrifice him, him for the greater good, even though he doesn't truly understand what's happening. Um, and it's just because he has this Ill- illness, like he can't speak, and therefore he sees that he doesn't have any value. Like, it's almost as if just because he can't talk, he doesn't have value. Mm-hmm. And um, just, and, and it comes from an idea of not understanding, right? He doesn't really understand what this virus is doing scientifically. There's nothing. And so 
these human beings become unwanted. But the beauty of the picture of watching Maurice adopt this daughter in Nova, it just reminded me of all of the people who are looked down upon because they have a disability or an illness and are unwanted by people because of that. Mm -hmm. And how important it is to see past somebody's quote-unquote disability to see the real person there, you know? And just because she couldn't speak didn't make her not smart. Right. I mean, what was so cool was to watch her learn sign language. Right. Like, you could tell there was still thought going on. There was still there was still humanity behind her eyes. Just because she couldn't talk didn't mean she didn't understand. And I thought that was so fabulous. And, and the ways in which we just artificially judge, oh, well, this this person might be born with is this illness. Let's just, you know, it's it's better if they're not alive. See, I didn't I didn't interpret the colonel's motivation for killing these people because that he felt they were useless. I interpreted it as him killing them because they were weak because of this and then they could cause the other people to be weak by spreading it. Right? Not a, not a useless factor, but a weakness factor and that you know, he's all about being strong and and showing this strong face to everybody like, you know, when he's in front of everybody, I'm strong, I'm killing these people, but when he's alone, I'm drinking and crying because I've killed my child. Right. So I I do understand what you're saying and I agree hundred percent with all the points. It's just that uh I didn't see him thinking that they were useless. It was just a weakness kind of factor. No, and I think I think you're absolutely right too. That I mean he even talks about the whole idea that the reason him and these other humans are at war is because his idea is just to eradicate right. the people that are you know, becoming susceptible to this simian flu updated virus, you know, virus 2.0. Mm-hmm. And they want to study it and see if they can find a way around it and, and, and understand it. And I, I, I thought that that was just interesting because they both actually have points and they just realize that they don't necessarily... They're not, they're not opposing points of view, really. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the colonel has just made it a black and white issue, but it's not. Yeah, right. You know, and that's that's kind of a a sad thing. And what I loved is the way in which humanity, the 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 kind of thing that we think of the best parts of humanity are transferring to the apes Mm -hmm. so that you want basically Nova to be identified as an ape at the end right? and not as a human. Like, she wants to be an ape. Right. You know, she even asked Maurice, am I an ape? And he doesn't answer her because he, there isn't a good answer to that because, no, she's not. Um, But the best of the apes comes from Caesar's understanding of morality and love and sacrifice and all those things he learned from Will and he's transferred that to his group of apes mm-hmm. or at least most of them and I thought that was just really fascinating to kind of watch true best parts of humanity switch from actual humans to apes right. that's it's such a masterful job in this film yeah like Nova was an interesting character getting back to her for a second because she's very different than her character in the original 
first two movies, the first two Planet right. of the Apes and they're movies. not supposed to be the same. Right. It it's just meant to be kind of a, you know, remo- you know, just that like wink. Right. And I mean, watching the movie, I want to know who that guy was that was with her at the beginning. Like, like looking back on it, it's like, was this guy her dad? Right. That that the apes ended up killing because when she walked past his body, like she didn't look too sad that this guy was dead. At least that's how I interpreted her reaction. So like, was this guy on the run from the colonel as well? Like, was he hiding out from the colonel or was this a base for the colonel? Like a, he was supposed to be there watching as a as a post, an outpost. I don't know. It's kind of neat, but I don't know. I didn't yeah, get the impression I, she was sad he was dead. <laughs> no, I didn't either. And it, it gave me the impression that maybe maybe she's abused. Right, yeah. Like maybe he picked you know, her up and kept her. Like, Yeah, absolutely. Know. I mean, the, none of that is he ever said or anything, but it's just kind of, I think you're absolutely right that the movie implies she's not torn up that this guy is dead. Yeah. And it leaves you just to your imagination completely. Why would she feel like that? Yeah. And it, none of the conclusions you come to are good. Right. So we'll just leave it at that because I don't want to talk about that part anymore. Sure, but I okay. think you're absolutely right. Um, and again, it, it just... what I thought what was so interesting too is that the way in which, you know, Caesar relaxed to her kind of the same way the colonel does. Like, no, we can't take her with us. It's, it's you know, it, she she's, you know, we, we can't do anything. It, no. You know, and and Maurice is like, no, I'm not going to leave this child here. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to abandon this person who has value, who deserves somebody to protect them. And I right. love that Caesar, by the end, sees her value and is actually saved by her himself and not only that, but she's also instrumental in helping save the rest of the ape society or Caesar's ape society. And like all because of one altruistic act by an orangutan. Yeah. See, Maurice I mean, is my favorite. How often do you say that about a film? <laughs> Maurice is my favorite character in this franchise. I love yeah. Maurice. I think he's great. And so, again, not having seen any trailers, when Maurice is like, well, I can't leave her behind, I'm like, what, so you're going to leave Maurice behind? No. And then the next shot is them riding a horse with the girl. So I'm like, okay, well, that's good. But um, I, I didn't realize it was Nova. I didn't know it was going to be Nova. When I realized it was Nova was when they came across those bodies in the snow. Like, there's so many, such amazing visuals. Like, the use of snow in this movie is wonderful. I love it. Um, but when they came across those bodies in the snow and that one guy wasn't dead and he wasn't talking, as soon as they did that, I'm like, oh, that girl's supposed to be Nova. And then she finds that Chevy Nova thing and, and you know, da-da-da-da-da, et cetera. But, um, man, this movie's so beautiful looking. Like, the shots in it. I love the snow. How many movies take place in the snow like this? Like, none. Nobody films in the snow. Yeah. Yeah, not anymore. You're absolutely right. And, in fact, I'm trying to think the last time I really saw... Good use of snow. It was probably I didn't love the movie, but the Hateful Eight. I haven't seen the Hateful Quentin Eight Tarantino. yet. Tarantino. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I didn't I didn't love the movie, but the use of of visuals with snow in that film is pretty phenomenal. So, uh, Tarantino understands how to create a shot. Uh, but no, I, I um I'm I mean I'm just I'm right there with you, and I think that this is such a you know it. it Again, that whole idea of somebody who's unwanted or 
we don't see the value in enough to take care of. Like, no, we don't, we can't, you know. And yet she becomes something that's so pivotal to the story and, and, and the linchpin in a lot of ways for saving our character. But also pretty interesting that there's a doll that she carries around in this movie that's just as pivotal as the doll in the original movie. Except mm-hmm. that this one, instead of proving that, you know, apes uh, weren't the first species to be smart, it transmits a virus into the human compound. And that's how we end up with the kernel de-evolving into the kernel. See, I they, they that left really that impression. Yeah, they left that impression, and that's a direct impression you're supposed to get. But that doesn't account for the fact that, that those dead bodies that they came across in the snow, like they weren't near the doll, right? So, yeah. <laughs> well, but she's carrying around the doll. Right. But I mean, but, she and she has the virus. And so yeah. that, I mean, once it's in the human compound, that means that it's transmitted and the colonel picks it up. You know, he's given. So he picks I, up I the doll. That that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, he could have got it from the people that he's killed and it could be going around the yeah. camp and stuff but yeah i see what you're saying one, yeah, yeah yeah one thing that i forgot to mention was so interesting uh on the mercy section and i'm just gonna go back and we'll talk about that the the character preacher real quick but the whole idea of caesar showing humanity mercy at the beginning and saying look i guess we could just call it mercy part two but <laughs> i i don't want this war anymore just leave us the woods and we'll leave you alone. And he sends, you know, um, the, the guys that he's captured back to the colonel. And it's that guy, that, that archer, who turns out to be the guy that shoots him in the side, which will be his ultimate death. And the the way in which that works i thought was just so interesting for the layers of the film of you know it, just because you do the right thing which caesar does at the beginning doesn't necessarily mean that the people you do the right thing to will also do the right thing exactly yeah uh, and I just thought that was a really fascinating thing for this movie to talk about and, and to kind of give us a visual of. Yeah, you got it. Because, you know, you, that's what you expect, and that's kind of what you expect out of the tropes of Hollywood is that I've shown you mercy, therefore you show me mercy as well. And they turn that on its head, and it's like, again, as part of that picture that's being painted of how bad humanity is and how solidly we've been painted into the corner of the apes and on their side because Caesar is continually trying to make peaceful overtures to these people and they just won't accept it. It won't matter because they can't get rid of their hate for the apes, right? Even though that this thing happened years ago, you know, it's not the apes' fault. It's humanity's fault. They still hate them. You know, Koba's dead. Koba's the guy that started the attack. Doesn't matter. We're still going to fight you. So, yeah, it's really interesting that they turn that completely on its head. Well, and it's 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 actually kind of interesting because, uh, you know, that whole idea of... The mercy shown with Preacher in that character and the idea of what I would like to call history learning uh, with the colonel. You know, the colonel talks about the reason that he doesn't want to join the other group of humans is because they're trying to understand what's happening 
with this virus and they're he he feels like that's not hum that that's humans not learning from the mistakes that they've made uh and so he rejects that idea of basically that you know we should try to understand what's happening to us in any way scientific and just kind of places himself in this quasi-religious sense of that I'm going to lead humanity to a better place. Like, that his group is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's them that's standing, you know, I guess against the gates of Hades. You know, like, basically, they're, they're, they're the last hope of humanity. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting the way that he plays upon that whole idea of not learning from history and, and, and trying to learn from it, but I, it, I don't really feel like he's learning from history because if we learn from history, we would maybe think we should understand what it is that we're up against better. And he's just trying to kill everything he doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And that's just closed-minded humanity being betrayed on the portrayed on the screen, right? I don't want to look at the at any other evidence. I'm just all I see is what's in front of me, my own beliefs. I can't get over them. This is my opinion, and that's it. And my opinion says I got to fight you. Yeah. Well, and what was was interesting, you know, we talked about at the the beginning, the <laughs> when we were talking about the war section, you know, the apes that are fighting with humanity to quote-unquote, save themselves. And I thought that was really interesting because they're only out to, to save themselves. Like, it's only about them. They've, they've made it uh, a purely about their own skin and saving their own skins. Um, and yet, they're like so many other people throughout history who have turned on their own people to rat out, to serve, you know, a foreign dictator or, you know, Aryan master. I mean, basically that's what we're talking about. Those kind of people, the people that have joined the other side in the hope that that side will basically almost forget about them (laughs) and allowing themselves to be treated like dirt. You know, like the way that the humans treat these apes that have quote-unquote joined their side... I mean, they call them donkeys. Mm-hmm. They actually spray paint on their bodies that phrase. Um, they treat them like vermin, basically. And it's just, it, it, to me, it was just such an interesting picture of, you know, the whole idea, Caesar says, ape strong together. And you can clearly see that these apes that aren't with the rest of the group are at the mercy of whatever humanity wants to do with them. Mm-hmm. They are not strong. Yeah, and they're weaker and, apart. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a really great visual to see how that just plays out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was sad to see that in this film because, again, like I said, in, in Con- uh, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, you know, we saw apes and humans working together, but they were really fighting against a group of humans. So there was like friendly ones together. 
but in this one again, they're they're joining the the invading force, the bad side. And I mean, when I saw this Winter Ape, uh, I was like, oh, this is gonna be a really cool character to see in the film. And he turns out to be a traitor. You know, he gives away their location, and it is something that happened in wars. But it's jarring to see it in this movie because again, we're so much on the side of the apes that. And apes or humans are very different, right? I mean, you look at a Jew and you look at a German and they're people, they're humans, right? You you know, and you, you hear the stories of how, um, you know, people would, uh, you know, basically help the invading force. You know, you saw it in Star Trek D Space Nine and how, how hateful Kira was against, you know, the Bajoran sympathizers. So to see these ape sympathizers is so bizarre because they're so different looking than the humans. It's like, why would they go to the human side? Because they they know what the humans are capable of. I don't know. It's just bizarre and it's weird to see. But it adds a great layer to the film. Well, and again, it's like this whole idea of history learning. It's like, the, you know, so many of these apes come from like zoos or things like that or experiments and whatnot. It's like they haven't learned the less treat the, the the history lesson that those kind of men don't want them around like they're just mm-hmm. using them for they're being used uh for uh, they're being taken advantage of is what i'm trying to say and mm-hmm. uh you know there, there's this whole thing happening from the side of the colonel to these apes and um you know even even caesar who's struggling with learning the lesson of Koba uh, as he slowly descends to becoming Koba, that he has a hard time fighting that. And and I thought what was so great about that, and I think it's a, it's a damning thing for us as human beings to watch this because you just are reminded of how dumb we are sometimes. Mm-hmm. And how we won't learn those lessons from history. And I, I mean, honestly, I'm just talking about personally myself, really personally. You know, look at my own life and there's plenty of those times when that's just... It, you, anybody on the outside just probably wants to slap you upside the head, you know? Um, and I, 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 think it's, I think it's really powerful stuff. I mean, the fact that we're talking about this kind of thing in a movie about apes, you know it's a good movie if you can pull this out. Well, that's the great thing about science fiction and even the great thing about the original movie, you know, like the original movie is such a cautionary tale about war, right? And how bad war can be, you know, we blow up the planet and, you know, you, you're staring at the face of apes hunting people and hanging them from bamboo poles like we would if we had gone into the jungles of Africa to hunt animals and hang them up and take our photos with them. You know, and when we do it, it's fun. We're people and we're masters of our domain. But to see somebody, to see an animal portray that way is disgusting and shocking and fascinating. But that's what's great about science fiction. And that's what's great about the best science fiction is it holds up this distorted mirror of our own reality. And it makes us stop and say, that's gross. That's wrong. Wait a minute. That's us. And and it, it reminds me very much, again, uh, I think I referenced this last time, but of what Wonder Woman had to say, like, maybe we're all to blame. You know, maybe we've all, maybe we need to basically check ourselves before I wreck ourselves, you know? And 
And that's what this whole movie, I think, in this whole series seems to really be saying is like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And and maybe you should really think about those things before you act because those actions have consequences. And some of them, like you said, even in the original Planet of the Apes, they could lead to the end of our civilization, mm. you know, if we're not careful. Uh, the, and, and ah, man, it's just great stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so we we talked a lot about the Colonel, and I think I think we would both agree that Woody Harrelson is fantastic in this role. I, yeah, I gotta say, so Woody Harrelson is an actor that I've never liked until I saw him in True Detective a couple of years ago, and since I saw him in that role, I've taken a little bit of a different approach when I go to Woody Harrelson. It, it used to be like, man, I just hate this guy. Anything he's in, I don't like, but I really have become to appreciate this actor, and I think he did a great job in this film as well. No, absolutely agree. You know, um, I don't dislike Woody Harrelson. He's never been a favorite of mine, I wouldn't say. But I think that in this movie, he uses that to his advantage, that Woody Harrelson-ness. He really uses that to his advantage, so he comes off as this just absolutely disgusting, awful, nasty guy at the beginning. And then when he tells you that story... And he's he's telling it to Caesar, and you realize why he's doing what he's doing. It makes this this whole thing turn on a dime, and you're like, oh, okay. So that's the predicament that human beings are in right now. This is what they're up against. And I think that he sells it perfectly. Like you need both of those sides of Woody Harrelson, and I, I think it's just it's great casting. He just nails it mm-hmm. so um it's it's a phenomenal performance and i mean when you're putting him up against andy circus's caesar that's exactly what you need uh, it, it's just great work um the only other uh, n- new character that we get other than nova really is bad ape <laughs> played by steve zahn and man um you know there aren't a lot of laughs in the ape movies on purpose but Boy, did he bring some great laughter in the theater when my wife and I saw it. And he's just hysterical. Love, love, love Bad Ape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a great addition because he is so different than what we've seen before. There isn't a lot of comedy. And, you know, this is this is kind of a dark movie, you know. Like, the second one, I think, is a little darker than this one. But, uh, you know, like, this is a dark movie. And to have that element of humor in there lightens it up a bit. But just the way that he looked, like, I'm just in awe of what a digital like would he see these movies like wow did they do a good job like bad ape looks just amazing maurice looks just amazing caesar looks just amazing like i can't believe the work that these guys are capable of doing and it's just gonna get better no i mean absolutely um you know steve zahn plays a, a perfect character here and you're absolutely right. You know, transitioning, I think, to the effects work. Is there ever a moment that you didn't buy that? I mean, I'm really asking, was there ever a moment that you didn't buy that there were really all of these apes on screen? Because we spend Not, a lot. I mean, the whole movie is pretty much with the apes for yeah. the most part. And I, I don't feel like there was ever a moment. There may be one. And I think it's when they were in the trees uh, at the end. The trees after the snow. After the avalanche. Avalanche. I think that's the only moment where I was like, okay, the CGI isn't perfect here. But even that, I'm like, 
I don't care. Like the moment they they cut to another scene and everything looks perfect again. Like it was astounding. Right. See, in this one, I didn't think so. Like I'd mentioned a couple times in the first one, I mentioned the bear attack in the second movie, but in this one, I didn't catch anything. I mean, I saw this in 3D. Did you see this in 3D? No, I did not see it in 3D. Was it actually good in 3D? I like it. I mean, I'm a fan of 3D. I like watching movies Mm -hmm. in 3D. If it's out in 3D, I want to see it in 3D. Um, But, you know, the, the opening shot in 3D when they were going through the jungle was beautiful. Mm. Oh, like, yeah, it, I bet. It looked amazing because everything was properly out of focus and gave you a proper depth of perception with that when they're slowly going through that jungle scene and everybody's coming by with their helmets and what's written on their helmets and they're going by. And oh, it, it, I thought the 3D was really, really, really good in the movie myself. No, I I mean, I would, I would like to see it again. And with that recommendation, I would probably see it in 3D just to see what it was like. Uh, but no, I, I mean, the effects work here is, I think, the new standard. Mm. You know, there have been movies throughout the years that have been standards. Obviously, 77, it's Star Wars, you know, and, and each iteration of Star Wars kind of upped the game. And then, you know, it was Jurassic Park, and then it was the prequels. And then, you know, like, it, there's been all of these milestones. Lord of the Rings with Gollum. I think Weta set the new standard mm-hmm. because... There just there isn't a moment that I don't buy that I'm watching a movie about real apes walking around. Mm-hmm. It, it's, I mean, and again, this movie, I would say two of like three fourths of it is with just the apes and from their perspective and from with a bunch of them on screen. It's just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, the work here is beyond outstanding, uh, and I. I Every single movie has their work cut out for them now. Have, have any of these movies won any Academy Awards or anything? Like, I don't follow the Academy Awards anymore. I gave up in 2000 when Ellen Burstyn from Requiem for a Dream lost Best Actress to to uh, Julia Roberts for Aaron Brockovich. I'm like, that's just a crime. Like, that's a hate crime, right? Like, J- Aaron Brockovich is a great movie, but Ellen Burstyn losing? That's, that's, a, that's brutal and that's unforgivable, I think. But... I don't recall that this movie, any of these movies have won any awards, have they? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that they have won. Um, I think that they have been nominated for Oscars, but there haven't been any wins. Oh, that's a crime. <laughs> uh, absolutely a crime. Uh, but I have heard talk that there is the uh, thought of bringing back the Special Achievement Award in visual effects mm-hmm. specifically for this. Absolutely think it deserves it. Uh, I, I think beyond a shadow of the doubt, I mean, I don't know if any movie is going to be able to be better than this visually in, in the the visual effects department. Deserves that award. I, I think we just need to nominate Andy Serkis for Best Actor Award. I don't, I mean, or we need to create a, an award for, you know, motion capture. But beyond that, I really just think that we don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. Because I think this deserves to be something that's nominated next to what we would call real acting. You know, because this is, I mean, everything about this character and these characters is coming from their human counterpart. Yeah, exactly. 
And I mean, like, so so many times these types of movies get snubbed by the Academy. But I mean, like, you know, the first one that was really amazing when I found out about it was, you know, back in 1986 when Sigourney Weaver was nominated for Best Actress for Aliens. Right. That's not the kind of thing that happens. So that's like a real surprise that happens. But yeah, Andy Serkis should definitely be nominated for this film. Yeah. And there's well, I mean, in the last time that a fantasy type film or something, I mean, it was Lord of the Rings. It was right. the, uh, you know, the Re- Return of the King finally won the awards that, you know, you could argue that maybe the two towers deserved. Yeah. Uh, but they finally gave it to them. And I, I think you can't deny this anymore. Uh, it's just, it's too good. Yeah. Um, I, I also think that Mike Giacchino's score here. Totally Oscar worthy. It is, it's phenomenal. One, because it has a, some great references to the original uh, in the way that it sounds. I, I love that he uses some of those uh, crazy Jerry Goldsmith type sounds to it. But the score fits every single beat perfectly in this film mm-hmm. and i i've loved listening to it right now i like it's actually it's one of those scores that you can just listen to kind of over and over again while you're at work or whatever it, it's just it's got great action moments but it also just has so much heart and depth and it's beauty to it it's sometimes he nails it and sometimes he doesn't but i think he just absolutely tears it up with this score it's so good yeah you've said a few things in the podcast so far that have been biting my tongue on the score like you keep calling it this western right this wet western revenge and i mean like there's the there's the acoustic guitar that's in this score and there's the tambourines like these are all things that you would hear like in an old ennio morricone western score right these are all those kinds of sounds but not only that it's mischievous in certain points like when when the apes are escaping I turned to my wife and I'm like, this music is fantastic. And she said, even the music stood out for me. She turned to me and said that, you know, like when they're escaping, that's the most brilliant piece of music in the whole film, I think, because it's so mischievous. <laughs> it's like, it's perfect. No, I, I, I think what it does is it harkens back to that original score, which had a lot of those sounds to it that mm-hmm. Goldsmith put in uh, with the, the idea of the Western but I also think that there's just he plays upon the themes that he started with in Dawn and just it all plays out so perfectly for for this movie. And you know, I just again, Chikino is somebody I think that can just absolutely nail a score. And then sometimes I'm like, eh, I feel like you kind of phoned that one in a little bit. This one, it just everything was where it needed to be. Yeah. Um Along with his score for Rogue One and Up, I think this may be my favorite score of his. It's just, it's that good. When I went and saw Doctor Strange with my wife, like, that's the only Marvel movie that I've seen. But I'm listening to this and I'm like, this is the score for 2009 Star Trek. Completely. And so I, I've, I've said a couple times, I've never been a big Giacchino fan, but I've really enjoyed his music for Dawn and War of the Planet of the Apes both. I think it's some. I think those are yeah. his best ones for sure. I really enjoyed Rogue One as well, but yeah, I really think that these are probably his best scores. Mm-hmm. These two here. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. Um, just wanted to to wrap up as we kind of talk about our ratings and and just the trilogy in general. Uh, I think we've probably said it, but uh, just kind of how did you feel 
reaching the end of Caesar's journey in this trilogy. I, I think it's an interesting conclusion. You know, Caesar dies at the end of the movie, and I think it's good that he dies at the end Spoiler of the movie. Spoiler alert! Well, we've spoiled the whole movie as we've been going along. <laughs> but it, it is the completion of his story, right? He he is the story here. This is the person that we're following. They could do more eight movies, but I almost don't want them to because this has been Caesar's story. And, you know, I've given the other two four and a half out of five. I'm going to give this one a four and a half out of five as well. I still think the first one is my favorite. You know, I just really enjoyed the take and I love the idea so much that they're trying to cure Alzheimer's and that's what made these apes smart. I just love that concept so much that it just puts it over the top for me for the other three. But that doesn't mean anything about me not liking the other two. I think four and a half out of five for all three of them. On a whole, the trilogy is a four and a half out of five and it's it's a great trilogy and I'm really glad I've gone back because as I said last time, I hated Dawn of the Planet of the Apes the first time I saw it because there were certain things in it that I couldn't get over, you know, and this was a great movie as well. And, you know, it it had a couple of harsh violent scenes in here. I mean, when the colonel just blows that one ape's head off, basically right in front of Caesar, you don't see the violence, but it's an extremely violent act that you don't see in the other apes movies. But I'm glad I rewatched Dawn of the Planet of the Apes ahead of time because it prepared me for, hey, this is a modern take on this and, you know. Get your head out of the 60s, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, Brandon, get your head out of the 60s. Um, this trilogy is so good. And I said it before, and I'll say it again. This is Lord of the Apes. This is that that kind of thing. Each film has felt so genuine and complete in and of itself, and yet it all builds together to, to create this wonderful trilogy for this story about Caesar and creating this character to which you know he he is this kind of mythic character in the end you know he is the ape moses he's the one that they're all going to remember who led them to the promised land you know that that made all of this possible and i think you're absolutely right you could totally make more apes films i don't know if i want any more mhm I don't think I need to see more of this story. I feel like these plus the original are perfect. Mm -hmm. It makes a quadrilogy that I don't need any more of, you know? And I don't know how... I, I'm sure you could make it really interesting, but I I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, the other... The other two films, I think it's a, a four, a four and a half. Uh, for me, this is a five. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this movie. It's a phenomenal movie. And what it does for the way it wraps up a trilogy, because so many times you get to the end of the trilogy and you're like, uh. You know, it's kind of like when you got to Jurassic Park 3 and it just totally blows. It sucks so bad. You know, uh, uh, yeah. This this just wraps it up perfectly, and it is a wonderful movie, and everybody should go see it. And if you haven't seen this trilogy, and for some reason you're listening to us talk about it, it's just a phenomenal trilogy. Yeah. You know, even if you're not, if, even if you're kind of like, really like a movie about apes, like these movies have so much to them that it's worth your time to invest to go back and like watch each of them and i think you you're just you're going to be really happy you did um 
My because wife didn't want to see this movie. I had it, I dragged her to it. I'm like, you know, I, <laughs> I she did, but she said she's like that was a heck of a lot better than I thought it was going to be. And you know, we've both said that you know we don't really want to see more if they do it, which is completely different point of view than when we talked about the Alien movies, right? With Alien Covenant, and I'm like, mm-hmm. you you said you don't want to see more, and I'm like, yeah, I want to see more. Bring on more. I love the Alien universe, right? And I love the Planet of the Apes universe, like Star War or Star Trek. Planet of the Apes, Aliens, those are my favorite franchises. But this one, I don't want to see more because I think this story is complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, sometimes it's just best to know when when you do have it perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you can't make it better by making more. Right. And so uh, I think this is definitely one of those cases. Like, they did such a great job of adding to the Planet of the Apes films, which I didn't think was a good idea in the first place. I don't know if it's good to tempt it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's fantastic talking about these with you, Brandon. It's it's been before so we sign much off. Fun. Sorry, I want to point out two Easter eggs that I really really loved in the movie. So, you got to see you got to see at least the next two Planet of the Apes movies, buddy. You know, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes Escape from Planet of the Apes. I love the reference in this to Beneath the Planet of the Apes with the Alpha and the Omega. Great, wonderful, I love it. But the other one. I turned to my wife and I went, oh, yeah, when they were stringing those apes up and hanging them on those crosses. Yep, yep. Oh, man, I turned to my wife and went, yes. And she's like, well, how can you like that? Those aren't obviously the same ones you saw in the movie because the avalanche wiped them out. And I'm like, I don't care. It's just neat to see them because the first time you see them in the Planet of the Apes movie, they're so spooky. It's like, what are these things? Are they a scarecrow? What are they? What's going on? And then to find out that it's like some type of crucifix for these apes is like, Great. I just, I don't know. I just thought it was wonderful. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, great call outs. Uh, and I, I felt the same way when I saw those. I was like, no way. That's so awesome. <laughs> um, and, and yet, no, not awesome at the same time. So, y- you know, uh, it, um, talking through these has just been phenomenal. And I really appreciate you joining me to, to walk through the series. And, and I'm just glad that it's, it's turned out to be this good. Yeah. You know, you don't expect the third film in a franchise to be possibly the best. You know, I mean, for me it was. Uh, but it also stands on the shoulders of the other films. So, I mean, it... it, it but it, it also, like you said, it stands on its own. I It's it's incredible stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been great talking about it. I really appreciate our associate producers that we have through Patreon. Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson who make this possible. Uh, with the Trek FM Network and the 602 Club. I, I really appreciate their support here. And Now, you know, at Trek FM is a huge network. We have, I think, over 24 different shows. We have 25 now, I think it is, with, uh, if I, I may have counted wrong, but we have a lot, okay? Uh, and there's so much going on, and, and there's just absolutely no way that we can do this on our own. And so we ask you to go over to patreon.com slash Trek FM and just see how you can be part of our team. Uh, every little bit helps a month uh, just to make sure that all of this stuff keeps coming to you. Uh, we have some great perks for you. Brandon runs our patron zone, uh, and we try to give back as much as we can, whether it's early access to content, certain levels you can be on the patrons roundtable, and so much more. So again, just check that out and see how you can help us at patreon.com slash Trek FM. Well, Brandon, uh, my uh, man about town, my international podcaster of mystery, where can people find you if they wanted to talk some more apes or just uh, check out what else you're doing online with podcasts? 
Well, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. Um, I'm always tweeting there, trying to expose my social media presence a little bit more. Um, if you want to hear a bit more about talking about Planet of the Apes, Davis Grayson, who's the associate producer uh, of this show, has a podcast called Couch Potato Theater, and I was on an episode with him where we talked about the first Planet of the Apes movies just a little while ago. You can find that on the Fandom Podcast Network feed, and you can also find me over there with a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. Uh, we just released our first supplemental episode, which is the first part of the Hitchcock and Truffaut interviews from 1962. Um, you can find me here on the network uh, with two more episodes of Melodic Treks. I'll be wrapping it up fairly shortly here. Uh, and you can find me with Warp 5 and my friend Floyd, where we talk about Star Trek Enterprise. And then today, if you haven't seen it in your feed already, go and find me on The Edge, which is our brand new Star Trek Discovery podcast here on the network. So it's going to be a lot of fun to get in on that. Brandon, what have you done out there on the edge of podcasting? Um, Star Trek? <laughs> Good answer. Uh, <laughs> oh, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02, uh, obviously here on the network with Chris Jones doing the orb, talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. You could find me on the Nerd Party Network with John Mills talking about Star Wars on Aggressive Negotiations. Make sure you check that out. It's just a blast doing that show with him. I'm also doing Owl Post with Dre Coffin, where we talk about each and every chapter of Harry Potter. And then you can find me on Cinema Stories with Courtney Huskisson as we are talking about film through the lens of faith. Uh, you can find each of those on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you get your podcast. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? hear?